Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you remember, we left our cliffhanger off last week. We, 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 we were talking last week about the nation, where all God's promises to Abraham about his people it's finally coming together in David. God had told Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the, the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. And we've seen that happen over time. He, he told them that they would have this land of Canaan. You know, I, I just keep drawing this rectangle. It's basically modern day Israel. That they would rule that, and they ruled a lot of it. But if you remember from our time talking about Joshua and the judges and Joshua leads the army in and takes out all the fortresses and then he disperses the army by tribe to go take the, their land that Moses had assigned them and, and they, they don't all do it. So they don't actually have all the land that God had said to them and God had promised them that, that there would be kings come from Abraham's line, that, that one day they, they would have a government and a king and, and all these things. And that happened, but it seems like they kind of jumped the gun. The people demanded a king from God before the king God had prepared, David, was ready. But now finally, David is the king. He conquers all the land that God had told Abraham, this is the land of Canaan that you're going to have. So we have God's king ruling God's people in God's land. And this is where 2 Samuel chapter 5 starts. And if you, I'm just going to read the headings from my Bible. Yours probably say something similar. David becomes king over Israel. It tells us he's 30 years old. That's significant. We're going to talk about that more. He becomes king over all Israel. And then my little headers after that says, David conquers Jerusalem. David defeats the Philistines. That's the rest of the chapter. Again, David is filling in that rectangle. There were places in that rectangle, the land of Canaan, that God had told Abraham, God had told through Moses to the people, I'm giving you this land that they hadn't taken. David finally finishes he takes the city of Jerusalem. He takes out the Philistines who have land in Canaan. Now, finally, Israel rules all of Israel. And then in chapter 6, my heading says, the ark is brought to Jerusalem. So again, you remember from a couple weeks ago, we talked about how under Moses, God had had them build this ark. It's like his throne. He had them build this big tent that had this little area in it where the ark sat. And there's this huge 18-inch curtain that separates where the ark is from where the, the priests are because God actually comes and sits on that throne. Like, you can hear him behind the curtain. He, he speaks and you hear his voice. They set out the sacrifices and fire comes out and burns up the sacrifice. That God is right there. And then, over time, as we've seen, it doesn't go as well as you wish it would. At this point, so that the ark is in around 1400 BC. David is ruling around 1000 BC. So we're hundreds and hundreds of years later. At this point, they're treating the tabernacle and the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot. They have divided up the curtains. You know, you read those stories about medieval Christianity and everyone's looking for a piece of the true, the true cross or, you know, the finger bone of John the Baptist or something like that. That's what they're doing with the tabernacle. There's everyone wants a piece of the tabernacle and they're, they're hauling the ark around as if it was an idol. Like when they go into battle, they, you know, they pick it up and they carry it. it, it People are thinking, oh, that, that's their God. You know, our God looks like a bull. Your God looks like a big chest. 
There's no tabernacle. The ark is just out there. They're treating it like it's some sort of lucky charm. Like it's all fallen apart. And what does David do? He builds a new tabernacle. He gets the ark. I mean, it's just in some guy's house. Gets the priests. They bring it. He's reestablishing the proper worship of God. You've got a tabernacle again. You've got the ark. He gets priests. They start to do everything they're supposed to. Like, this is really good. This is looking really, really good. In chapter seven, David says, well, wait a minute. I live in a palace and God lives in a tent. That doesn't seem fair. How about I build God a palace too? And it'll still still have the room and the curtain and all that, but instead of being a tent, it'll be a building. And God, read with me in chapter 7. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God's answer to David, starting in verse 8. And God is speaking to a prophet, telling the prophet to go tell this to David. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, and have done so ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Remember, David said, I want to build a house, a a, a palace for God. And God says to David, I will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. you've You've got an ancestor of Abraham who's now the king. He's ruling over God's people. They've got God's house again in the tabernacle. They're in the land. God told them, do you remember way back in Genesis 3, when the snake, evil in the form of the snake, has it, it's made it's tricked Eve. Adam, her husband, has followed. Everything's fallen apart, and God makes this promise to Eve. She says, "But some," he says, "someday, someday you'll have a descendant who will crush evil. There's gonna be one of your descendants someday is gonna strike that final blow against evil and." And I'm going to put everything back right. And the question you ought to be asking yourself at this point is whether David is that guy. Because it sounds like it. Remember, we're talking about the Bible, not as all these different stories, which there are. There's zillions of stories. And not even as if it was an anthology. You know what an anthology is, right? Like it's the 25th anniversary of Harry Potter, and so they get all these writers to write an essay about Harry Potter. Or or you get a bunch of people to write stories in, in the same universe as some other story. The Bible has lots of authors and lots of stories, but there's this overarching story that's taking place that started back in Genesis, and we're in what's called the rising action. Back in Genesis 3, man and God were wrenched apart. 
God makes people, puts them in the garden, but they won't stay there. The rule is, well, you know, it's my garden, it's, but you got to go by my rules. And we're living out the cry of the three-year-old, no, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. So God and man have been wrenched apart. And slowly, God has been working to bring things back together. God's dwelling with people again. Okay, now, 18 inches of fabric between him and them, but at least he's there in their midst. David's reestablished it. He's created a people. He's created a nation. Like, at this point in the story, you think, wow, is this it? Is David the guy? And so 2 Chronicle goes on. It tells us David's victories. We've learned how David, he's taken over that, that rectangle of the land of Canaan. Now, if you go through and look at 2 Chronicles chapter 8 and look at verse 12, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Amalekites, the, the people of the king of Zobah, he's conquering all the people around Canaan. He conquered Canaan and took it over, and now he's conquered all the territory around it, and he's made them vassals. So he's created a buffer zone so that people, just what God said, his people can't be oppressed and harmed. Nobody can invade Israel because there's all these other countries around it that owe him loyalty, that will protect Israel. David's, the next, my little heading in eight is David's officials. Then look at this in chapter nine, David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the final male relative of Saul through one of his sons. This is a patriarchal society, right? So the kingship is going to descend from father to son. Saul's sons are all dead. He has one grandson left from those sons. That guy's name is Mephibosheth. Now think about it. Real politique, right? David is the king. He's not related to Saul. In fact, they're different tribes. Saul's a tribe of Benjamin. David's a tribe of Judah. That means they trace their ancestry back to the man Israel in the 1900s BC. They are not connected. They're not family. They have nothing in common with each other, right? Saul was the old king. He's gone. David's the new king. But there's one male descendant of Saul left. Now, if you're the new king, what do you got to do with that guy? You got to get rid of him. He's a rallying cry, right? Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. What happens if people of Benjamin are kind of like, um, you know, it was better around here when our guy was king than when this guy from Judah is king. We were getting all the good stuff when our guy was king. Who are they going to rally around? There's a grandson, father to son to son of the old king. In any world, you got to get rid of this guy. Listen to what David says in chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone who could possibly overthrow me that I can be generous to? Because Jonathan, Saul's son, was David's best friend for years. And Jonathan died defending his father in one of his father's idiotic military schemes. And look what it says when they go on down. Verse six, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. Yeah, I bet he did. What do you think this kid's thinking? The guy who replaced his grandfather, that he's the next in line for the kingship, calls him in. What is gonna happen to him? He knows he's a dead man. 
David, what does he say to him? Verse seven, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. I'm going to give you back everything you lost. You are the biggest threat to my reign I have. And I'm going to give you all your wealth, all your status. I'm going to give it back. Anybody ever read The Republic by Plato? Oh, come on, help me out here. I'm a classics major. You got It's the foundation of all philosophy. Plato describes the ideal ruler. Like if you were, what is the best possible form of government you could have? You've probably heard this. A benign dictatorship is what Plato says. The best possible form of government you, should ha- you can have is one guy with all the power, and that guy's good. And he's using all that power for his people. What he describes sounds exactly like David. Fierce in battle. David has never lost a battle, ever, in his life. He is an incredible warrior. No one. Again, he fought the Philistine champion who was a giant. He had no weapons, no armor. He killed the guy with his own sword because he didn't have a sword. (laughs) He had to knock him down and then kill him with his own weapon. He's an incredibly fierce warrior, and he is a generous, good man in peace. He is looking to do good for people. If you, you, you read what people say, what would be the best kind of king? It's this guy. It's all the things he does. He's a musician. He's a man of culture. He writes songs. He's a man of God. He's bringing the ark back. We know when he plays his, when he goes out and plays worship songs, demons flee. They don't want to be around this guy. Evil wants nothing to do with this guy. He is a man after God's own heart, we're told. Like, is this the guy? In this story that the Bible is telling all the way back to Genesis, Is this the guy? This is the guy that's going to bring it all back together. God and people, we're going to come back together. It's all going to be good. Now, everything in the scriptures, it's all true. It's history. But the stories are arranged to make points. The the guy is pulling things out. Like if you look at this, he actually told us back in like chapter 5 about the birth of Solomon. Solomon won't be born for 25 more years after that. He's just telling us, hey, this is going to happen. You need to know about this. It's coming. Chapter 10, like all of this incredible good stuff has happened. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites, so this is a vassal kingdom. David conquered them, we were told previously. He's made the king his vassal. The king dies, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought... I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. You remember I told you about that when God talks to Abraham, it sounds a lot like all these letters and things that we have from this time period where a great king has vassal kings. That's how God talks to Abraham. I'm the great king and you are my vassal king and I will give you this land and you will control it. That's what David's got going here. He's the great king. The king of the Ammonites is one of his vassal kings. He's sending a delegation to renew the covenant. We're we're, we're all going to be one big happy family, right? I'm happy with the way this arrangement is going. Are you happy with being king? This is great. Let's just keep it going. Yeah, it doesn't work out that way. 
Um, when David's men, verse 2, came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanun, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? David is the great king. He already conquered you. That's like an idiotic thing. If he wanted to take you out, he can take you out. He's already proven that. So Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they're greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown back and then come home. When the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah, with a thousand men, and also 12,000 men of Tob. Verse 7. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. Never read that before. We've read David fight a lot of battles, like scores and scores of battles. We have never read that David sent someone. He's the king. He leads. He goes. You, if you, I did it. You can do it. Flip back through. Find every place David is mentioned in a battle. David went. David led. David is the first one out there. Not this time. Something's happening. right? Why has the author put this story to tell us this? David doesn't actually go out to verse 17. After they rout the battle, in verse 15, the Arameans saw they were routed by Israel. Then in verse 17, David gathers Israel, crosses the Jordan, went to Helam. David only comes to fight the final battle and win so that he's the victor, and he gets the spoils. Something's going on here. Chapter 11, in the spring. At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, so they finished what they had started previously, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. The king, the guy, the guy who's supposed to lead, the guy who's supposed to be in charge, the guy who's supposed to set the example, the guy who's supposed to take the army and go do these things, he's not doing them. He's staying at home in the palace. And the story's long, I won't read you the whole thing, but I'll summarize it for you. While he's at home, he has an affair with the wife of one of his bodyguards. Like one of, He's got 30 guys that are his personal bodyguards. And he has an affair with the wife of one of them. She gets pregnant, so he calls the bodyguard to come back under the guise of, hey, tell me about how the war's going. Give me a report. Thinking, great, he'll come home. He'll, he'll go home to his wife, right? No one will be surprised when she turns up pregnant because her husband came and visited her. Yeah, he won't go home. He sleeps with the other soldiers in the palace. And David's like, uh, why didn't you go home? <laughs> you, you should go home. And the guy's like, oh my gosh, I would never do that. All my men are sleeping in the open field under threat of death. I'm going to go home, have a nice warm meal, a bath, and, and spend the night with my wife. I would never do that to my men. So David writes a letter, seals it up, hands it to the guy, says, give this to the commander when you get back. The letter says, make sure this guy dies in a battle. This guy, by the way, is a Hittite. 
He's not Jewish. He's a foreigner who has come to David and pledged his loyalty. He's converted. And he, ha- he is such a good warrior, he is one of the top 30 in the whole nation. There's hundreds of thousands of guys who are fighters. I mean, every guy is in the army in this world. This is one of the top 30 guys ever. And he has pledged his loyalty to David. And David repays his loyalty by having an affair with his wife and murdering him. Is this the guy? Is this the guy that's going to bring it all together? Is this the guy that finally God and man are going to be reconciled? Bible drop? You think is that a thing now? No. No, this is not the guy. Oh my gosh. This is not the guy. And you re- read the chapter headings in your Bible from now on. Nathan rebukes David. Ammon and Tamar. Okay, that is about a brutal rape in his family. Absalom kills Ammon. Those are two of David's sons. One of his sons is killing the other son. Absalom returns to Jerusalem. He was exiled. He comes back. Absalom's conspiracy. David flees. Simi, Simei curses David. Do you know, chapter, chapter 10 is 25 years after David became king. The guy putting these stories together. He's not writing a biography of David. He's writing a biography of God and his people. He's writing his part of this overarching story of redemption. And so David becomes king and everything looks so good. And then he jumps and tells us, yeah, it didn't, it didn't happen like you think it was. This isn't the guy. You think this is the guy. Wow, this isn't the guy. And David just does this until we get to the end of David's life. The whole thing falls completely apart. Turn with me to the end of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 24. And again, we don't know when this story takes place chronologically. The guy writing it has taken it and put it at the end to make a point to us. Chapter 24, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many they are. And remember, we've talked about that's forbidden. You are never allowed to know how many fighting men you have because then you would rely on the numbers of your army. And God says, you rely on me and you don't fight unless I tell you to. I will protect you. If I want you to fight, I'll tell you to fight. You don't need to know how big your army is. You don't even have to have a standing army. When I tell you to, you call up men. If you need to fight, you let me worry about that. Fighting is not the king's job. It's God's job. But David says, yeah, tell them. Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Joab is a bad man in the Bible. Don't name any of your children Joab, by the way. It's a terrible name. He, he's an evil, evil man, okay? When Joab says to you, that's a terrible idea. What are you thinking? Wow, you ought to clue in, right? But the king's word overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of king to enroll the fighting men. Flip on over to chapter t- to verse 10, because they do. They come back and they tell him how many men he has. And David was conscience-stricken. After he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. 
Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of God, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, I am the shepherd. I have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here's oxen for the burnt offering and here's the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord God accept you. But the king applied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekel of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel stopped. Why is that the last story in this guy's book? Because it tells you something about David. Because David screws up massively. Thousands, tens of thousands of people died because of what he did. And when God confronts him on it, he repents. And when he sees the result of his sin harming other people, he says to God, take me instead. It's not, don't, don't hurt them. Take it out, me, it's my fault. Hurt me. What does God say? No. What does he do instead? He kills an animal. He sacrifices somewhere else. Do you know where he's standing? Where the threshing floor of Araunah is? It's on the top of Mount Moriah. Where God said to Abraham, sacrifice your son. And Abraham went to do it and God said, no, stop. And he killed a ram, caught in the thicket instead. Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son to pay for his sin. A ram died. David doesn't have to die himself. An animal dies in his place. Because what are we going to celebrate this week? This is where Solomon will build the temple. This is where Jesus will be tried. This is where Jesus will say to God, take me instead. And God said to David, no. And God will say to Jesus, okay. 
and he will. Because God, I've heard Tim Keller say this, it strikes me every time. God says to Adam, look, obey me about this one thing. There's a tree. Obey me about that tree and everything will go fine. And Adam says, no. And God says to Jesus, there's this one tree, this one piece of wood. Obey me about the tree and offer yourself on it and I will crush you into powder. I will destroy you. And Jesus says, okay. David's not the guy, but he's coming. He's still coming. And so we wait. We get the story of Solomon. Is Solomon the guy? Right? Solomon looks so good to begin with, and then he crashes and burns. God comes to Jeroboam, one of Solomon's officials. So I'm, I'm going through 1 Kings now. We're flipping on through. Solomon looks so good, nope, crashes and burns. God comes to Jeroboam, one of his officials, and says, hey, look, David's family's not obeying me, so they can't keep the kingdom. If you don't obey me, you can't stay. If you will obey me, you can have the kingdom, and your descendants can have the kingdom. He makes the same deal with Jeroboam that he offered to David and David's descendants. So I am in 2 Kings 11. When when Jeroboam, my little heading says, rebels against Solomon, and God comes to Jeroboam and says, hey, I will do all this for you. I'm in chapter 11, verse 37. I will take you and you will rule over all your heart's desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do what I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. God says the same thing to Jeroboam as he said to David. If you will obey me, all this will go well. I just flip over one page to chapter 12. You know what my heading says? Jeroboam builds golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Anybody remember the golden calves? Doesn't go well. God's not a fan. Right? I mean, at least, you know, Solomon, it took like 10 chapters. David, it took like 20 chapters. Jeroboam doesn't even last a chapter before he's just... There are... And now there'll be a civil war because Jeroboam gets the the northern two-thirds, basically, of the country. And David's kids, his descendants, they keep the bottom third of the country. The northern two-thirds is called Israel. The bottom third is called Judah. So now you've got two kingdoms, two sets of kings. There's 40 kings. I think it's actually like 39, but 40 kings between those two kingdoms, okay? Six of them are said to follow God. Of those six, four crash and burn before they die. Two. Two kings says they follow God, and then we're not told about them doing anything horrible. Two. They both, but one dies at age 40, and the other dies at age 39, by the way. No one who lives past 40 does well. Everyone. All those kings crash and burn until eventually, if you keep flipping through first and second kings, They go into exile. The Assyrians in 720 come in and they wipe out that northern two-thirds. And a hundred years later, in about 605, the Babylonians come in and they take out the bottom third. Only they don't take the whole thing like the Assyrians do. They turn into a vassal state. And then Israel rebels. And so they come back and they take some more people and they put a new guy on and they make him the vassal. And they rebel. 
The king of Babylon, his name's Nebuchadnezzar, he has a strict three strikes and uh, two strikes and you're out policy. So they have rebelled against him twice. He levels it. He levels the city, literally. Doesn't leave two stones standing on top of each other. You remember those promises God made to Abraham? They're all undone. You will have a people more numerous than the sand. You will have, you'll be a nation. You will have a king. You'll have land. It's all gone. They're not numerous anymore. They've been decimated. They are numbering in the tens of thousands. They used to be millions. There are tens of thousands of them left at this point. They do not rule the land of Canaan. From 578 BC until 1947, there is 50 years where Israel rules the land of Canaan. It's, it's that, that God did that promise for them, and now it's done. They have never had a king since then. They have had kings put over them, Herod the Great, guys like that. The Romans install kings. The Seleucids install kings. The Parthians, lots of people put kings over them. They have never had their own king since the Babylonians took them out in 587 B.C., all of those promises to Abraham, they've all been undone. The tabernacle, which becomes the temple, the ark. Anybody remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, you haven't read Plato. Tell me you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thank you, right? The ark's gone. It disappears. When the Babylonians level the temple, they take the ark. And we have no, we've never found it. The throne of God is gone. That Herod, they'll re, they will remake the temple, they'll remake the tabernacle, they'll remake that room, they'll remake that curtain, but there's no ark behind it. The throne of God is gone forever. Folks, we're going backwards. You know, we've been on this, this ark of trying to get God and people back together, and it is collapsing. The promises that God has made to them, here's how we're going to do this. Right? Abraham, I'm going to do all this for you. Moses, I'm going to do all these things. David, I'm going to do all these things. All these covenants God has made with people, they're all collapsing because we won't keep them. Because every time you get someone in there who looks like he might actually do it, he fails utterly, completely. And, and we're exiled. It's gone. Remember, God told Abraham, your descendants will be more numerous than the, 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 the sea on the seashore. One of the commentaries I read said how sad it is that before the exile, the, the people of Israel were more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And after the exile, he says, a trickle, a trickle come back. 50, 70 years, 70 years later, 50 years after the destruction of the temple, 70 years after the Babylonians first invade. They do the Babylonians are taken over by another group of people, the Persians, who let the Jews go back to their people. It's like 30,000 people. It's a tiny little trickle that goes back into where they were. Everything is collapsing in the story of redemption. And the only thing we have left is the promises of God. God promised Eve you will have a descendant who will take out evil. It hasn't happened yet. God promised Abraham, all the nations of the earth 
will be blessed through your descendant. Hasn't happened yet. God promised David, your throne will be an eternal throne. Wow, it does not look that way at this point in our story. It doesn't look that way in 500 BC. It doesn't look that way in 400 BC. It doesn't look that way in 300 BC, 200 BC, 100 BC. It's just empire after empire rolling over the Jews. First it's one, then it's the other. Do you know in, the, in that 50-year period that, they are, that they're independent of the, the, it's the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire. Um, they start getting pressure from some of the old, old people that used to enslave them. <laughs> so they go to the Romans for help. Guess what the Romans do to them? Roll over them. Oh, you want troops to help you? No problem. Yeah, those troops never leave. It is all collapsing. How? How is God going to do this? How is God ever going to get man and people back together when anything that involves people fails? It fails horribly. Come on Good Friday. You will get to hear how God is going to do this. Because again, like David, like, like Adam, God says, obey me, and people don't. Obey me, and I'll bless you, and people don't obey. And God says to Jesus, obey me, and I will destroy you. And Jesus says, yes, do it. Not my will, your will. That's what we're going to celebrate on Friday. That's what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. But in each, these are history lessons, right? They're, they're, they're trying to take you through the story, but each time I've tried to say, okay, what, what, what do we do with this? This is what I want to leave you with. At this point in our story, all we have left are the promises of God because people have failed over and over and over again. And again, their story is our story. I hope you understand that's all you have as well because people will fail you over and over and over again. Our faith is built on the promises of God. We get to this point in the story when it's all collapsing and what we have is the secure knowledge that God has never lied and he's never failed. People, people have failed continually for thousands and thousands of years in this story. Every time you get someone who looks like he might pull this off, he collapses terribly. People will always fail us. God, God's promises, God's power, God's goodness, those things will never fail. That, that's what we sing about. That's what we worship. That's why we gather. The faith is unfortunately littered with people who bailed because other people failed them. Because the guy that led you to Christ renounced it later. Because the church that you were a part of collapsed and fell apart. Because you were part of something that you thought was great. And then you watched foolish idiot men Rip things to shreds. It's not new. We don't rest on people. We rest on God. We rest on the faithfulness of God because people are, they never manage to save us and they're never going to manage to save us. God is going to have to do this himself because we just. Anytime we are involved in the process, it collapses. And God in his mercy, he has allowed the church, he has allowed us to continue. We are still a part of his plan. But wow, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, 
you know that we keep doing this. <laughs> we keep collapsing. We keep being angry and we keep being greedy and we keep being proud and we keep, like David, we look great at one point and then you look later and you think, is this the same guy? What happened? We do not rest on people. We don't rest on the promises of man. We don't rest because, oh, that guy, that person, that organization, we rest on the promises of God. So I'm gonna pray for us. And then we're going to celebrate communion because that is the promise of God that we are resting on. That when Jesus said, what we'll celebrate this Friday is we, we take communion together. When Jesus said, I'm going back to my father's kingdom and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he adds, and I wouldn't lie to you about this. I wouldn't say this if it wasn't true. That's what we remind ourselves when we take that that piece of bread, when we take that cup, we remind ourselves of Jesus' promises. So I'm gonna pray for us. When I'm done praying, there's stations in all four corners. There's gluten-free down here to my right if you need that. After I've prayed, get up, go to whichever station you like, get the bread, get the cup. Don't eat it at that point. Take it back to your seat. I'll guide us. We'll take it together. But, but we will remember we will remind ourselves, again, that's what Jesus said to do. He said, take this and remember me. We will remind ourselves that our faith rests on the promises of God. That's where it rests at every point in the story. Right? That's where it rests where we are in the story right now in the 500s BC. That's where it rests for us today in 2000 AD. We rest on God's faithfulness. We rest on God's power. We rest on the fact he has never lied and he has never failed. And if he said it, he'll do it. Now he chooses the time and he chooses the way. But that's what we hang on to. So pray with me. Uh, Lord, um, thank you. <laughs> thank you that, that you have never failed because everybody in this story has. All the kings will fail. All, all, all Abraham failed, Moses failed, Joshua failed. All the judges failed. All of us, Lord, none of us live righteous and holy lives. None of us do what is right every moment. I don't, and no one in this room does. We all know the truth of that. You, Jesus, you are the only one who has never failed. And yet, you then become the one who paid. David, David failed, but he didn't pay. Abraham failed, and he didn't pay. You, you never failed, and you paid. Thank you. We remember, Lord. That's when we gather at this time. We remember. So Jesus, I pray for us as we take the bread, as we take the cup, help us to remember. Remind us. Work it into our hearts and our minds that, that it is your promises. It's your faithfulness. That is what grounds us. We, we are not grounded that, that people are going to do this well because we're not. Jesus, remind us that you are faithful. And that is what we wait on. So we pray this in your name, always. Amen.